Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Will, and I'm here with the usual public health panel, Gordon, LaShawn, Ben, and Sully. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. We wanted to start by saying a massive thank you to every single one of our listeners all around the world. Thank you for taking time out of your day to support us. If you're interested, please send us an email at thepublichealthinsight at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram with your name, where you're from, what you do, and maybe an insight that you've learned from the podcast. We will personally respond and pick a couple of you to shout out in the next couple episodes. On behalf of the Public Health Insight panel, thank you again for your continued support. On May 1st, 2020, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a nationwide ban on military-style weapons. This ban comes 13 days after a gunman murdered 22 people in the province of Nova Scotia, the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. Given the extensive media coverage of this issue, the panel decided to discuss the broader relationship between gun violence and public health to explore the nuances of the argument. They will also analyze the recent ban in Canada and talk about its long-term implications. Before we continue, I just want to give our condolences for all the families and communities that were affected by this tragic act. So in order to dissect this issue, it's important that we start by defining what gun violence is and also discuss whether gun violence is indeed a public health issue or not. What do you guys think? So defining gun violence, it's violence committed with the use of firearms, for example, pistols, shotguns, assault rifles, machine guns, etc. And gun violence is a modern day human rights issue as it threatens the most fundamental human right, the right to life. So with this definition in mind, do you guys think gun violence is considered a public health issue? Why or why not? So gun violence is a public health issue because it disproportionately affects some populations and uh, minorities and people of color are disproportionately represented as victims of gun violence, uh, which implicates the underlying social inequities and the determinants of health. And we know public health is focused on these issues. Yeah, that's a good point, Gordon. I also just wanted to add that public health, as we know, is the art and science of preventing diseases or prolonging life and promoting health through an organized set of efforts at a societal level. And so by this definition, since gun violence is responsible for shortening life, and we in the public health business are focused on prolonging life, the two definitely clash. And that's why I think gun violence is indeed a public health issue. And it also touches on many other things. Gun violence involves the death of people. It involves permanent life-altering injuries. There's the consequence of post-traumatic stress disorders and other mental health illnesses as a result of gun violence. There's destructions of family and community. And like Gordon mentioned, there's communities that are disproportionately affected by these social issues. Right. Those are really good examples, Ashan. Um, and I think I would classify those as more the direct impacts of gun violence, right? For example, like you said, PTSD and other mental health um, illnesses that develop as a result of, of these violences. Mm -hmm. But what do you guys think are some potential indirect impacts of gun violence, or do you think there are any? Well, in the healthcare perspective, healthcare facilities tend to avoid being located in areas of high gun violence, 
And there's also legislation such as the Mandatory Gunshot Wounds Reporting Act of 20, 2005 in Canada, which means that all gun-related injuries must be reported by healthcare providers to law enforcement. So you have individuals who are, like Gordon said, in more vulnerable populations that are the victims of gun violence or perpetrating gun violence, unable to access medical care. Another um, indirect consequence of gun violence is when we talk about victims, it's not only about the person who was killed or injured by the use of firearms. It's the psychological trauma that affects communities and families. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if enough resources are being placed in counseling families affected by gun violence because there was a TED Talk that I was watching with uh, Dr. Gary Slutkin, and he was making the argument that the greatest predictor of gun violence is a preceding act of violence or gun violence in general. So given that public health measures are focused on preventing disease, and he also makes the analogy that gun violence should be treated like an infectious disease. And the argument that he makes is that if you want to find out why there's an outbreak of you know COVID-19 in a community, you contact Trace and find patient zero, essentially. And this is because the greatest predictor of whether someone will get COVID-19 is being exposed to someone with COVID-19. And then the parallel argument is that the greatest predictor of gun violence is a previous act of gun violence, which then perpetuates in the community. So he is advocating that the same approaches be taken. I just want to go back to Will's point about indirect consequences of guns and gun violence. We know from research that um, the presence of uh, firearms in homes increases the risk that a woman will be killed by intimate partner violence. So just this experience in women being traumatized over and over can actually, the presence of guns in communities can demoralize and disempower women. So that's another unintended consequences of guns as well. It's interesting because we're, we're making these connections between public health and guns or firearms. And like you mentioned that you, uh, what you saw in the TEDx talk about connecting guns as similar to an epidemic. But one of the interesting things I saw that's related to the public health approach to firearms and guns is that in the United States, for example, firearm research is very underfunded. The data is actually very limited, and it's deliberately not collected and withheld in many cases. There's not a lot of good collection systems for collecting data about how many people were shot in certain states, what percentage of households have guns, and we don't even know how many people are storing guns. So with this in mind, there's not a lot of data actually being released to researchers. And if we talk about a public health approach that is evidence-based, having data is going to be crucial to this. And one of the important things in America that kind of inhibits this is one of the amendments called the Dickey Amendment. And this amendment basically says that no money that the CDC or other federal agencies give can be used to promote gun control. So it basically means that a generation of researchers were told not to look into gun and firearms. And as a result, the group of researchers actually working on firearm research and research on guns, they're staggeringly low. And so if we're thinking about a public health approach, it's going to be important that we have this information so we could, so we can have knowledge on how to implement different strategies on how to reduce gun violence or have knowledge about different potential policies that can work out well for specific communities. Um, with that in mind, however, 
there has been a bit of change since the Parkland incident. There's been a bit more funding, but even with this increase in funding, it's severely underfunded overall. Right, Lashan, and you made a point in the sense of how do you implement gun control, and if it's a public health issue, and we're not allowed to do it because a generation has not been able to do research in it, it goes into the indirect consequences of gun violence and how do we treat that. So we talked about mental health, we talked about intergenerational trauma, but then we have to ask ourselves, how do you even quantify that to make an evidence-based public health intervention? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are really, some really good points, guys. I wanted to follow up on what you said, Sean earlier about, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Dickey Law? The Dickey Amendment, yeah. Dickey Amendment, yeah. And I don't know, for me, when I heard you explain you know, the lack of funding for you know, gun-related research or um, gun control research, things like that, for some reason, what popped into my mind was the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, what, like, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this, but to me, it I seem to you know, make that parallel between the, the gun and manufacturing slash sales slash that whole um, sector. And I seem to make that connection between that and tobacco and alcohol in terms of um, one, public health impacts, and then two, just the amount of politics that's involved in that sector that kind of affects how it is studied or researched. Right. And I think there's a lot of complications that come about when there's an interaction of public health, politics, and economics or capitalism. When you have companies that are the most wealthy. So I know in the United States, it's the NRA are some of the most prominent pro-gun groups. And if they're involved in politics by making donations to the people with power, then public health will have roadblocks when they're trying to make any meaningful changes. And that's a big complication for sure that we've seen in tobacco and the sugar industry as well. And that's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. As we've seen and as we've discussed, gun violence is indeed a very important issue, both in terms of societal impacts as well as public health impacts. So Amnesty International states that over 500 people die from gun violence each day globally, and 44% of all homicides are gun-related. And globally, an estimated 2,000 people are injured by gunshots every single day. And so, as you see, um, gun violence is indeed a very significant issue affecting various communities around the world. And however, one of the solutions that often comes up when discussing gun violence is the implementation of national gun control laws or regulations to prevent gun violence. And with all laws, there are those who are opposed to it through these and those who are um, in favor of these. So Mm. um, maybe let's discuss some of the arguments that opponents against gun control laws tend to back their position. So one of the major arguments against gun control is that the law doesn't work for criminals. So if a criminal is going to break the law, they're going to find a way. And if you're going to take guns away from law-abiding citizens, that means criminals who obviously don't follow the law are still going to have their guns, leading to a population that is arguably more dangerous. Yeah, and another thing would be, you would argue that prohibition on anything is a foolish idea because people would think back to prohibition on alcohol in the 1920s and 30s. And because of that, it would cause the black market to flourish. So when they say banning regular markets will cause gun dealers to go underground, it's not far-fetched. And another consideration is gun control limits 
individual rights. So if we're going to go back to U.S. example, it's baked in right into their constitution in the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. So individuals who maybe use guns for self-defense and protection or for even using it for sport or hunting purposes. So I think there's a major problem here because if we're if gun violence is essentially a violation of human rights and then removing guns or implementing gun regulation is a violation of the constitution and hence the inherent rights of you know American citizens in this case it's kind of a lose-lose scenario wouldn't you say it's almost like either way the community at large is going to have their human rights infringed upon right right so it's you're going to have people who are angry regardless of the the outcome and which is just going to be a whole messy mess a messy mess <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I wanted to go back and kind of analyze what has been said. So Ben and Sully, the points that you guys made, I seem to draw a level of connection there. Because Ben, you you mentioned that you know, laws don't work on criminals. And if they're going to break it, then they'll do it regardless, right? And right. Sully mentioned mm-hmm. that you know, prohibition is never a good idea. And I totally agree that if individuals want to you know, continue to traffic firearms and whatnot, they're going to do it regardless um, whether there is a law or not. And I think that if we risk driving them into unmanageable territories, per se, where you know you can't have the law enforcement or the oversight to manage and keep an eye and keep them accountable for what they're doing, then I would say that definitely endangers more people. Yeah, well, because uh, one of my biggest concerns is due to this federal ban in Canada on the sale of AR-15s, the Canadian Sporting Arms and Ammunition Association has said that they estimate about 200 to 300 million in inventory is just sitting in the supply chain and it can't be sold. Mm-hmm. So my question is, where are those guns going to go? Are some of it going to be regulated by the government, taken and dealt with, or is some of it going to leak through into the black market? Because if you're working in the black market, you just found a huge supply of guns that you can fit through your supply chain. And it creates these problems, like unattended consequences of a bill that we hope to solve the problem results in more problems that we can't control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those gun regulation laws, are they doing what it was intended to do? So if we, I'm not sure of the numbers right now, but if most crime, like the mass shooting, for example, is linked to illegally acquired weapons or people who weren't licensed to carry weapons, then Mm. these gun laws do not solve the problem because it's not licensed gun owners in a lot of these cases that are doing these heinous crimes so by taking guns and i'm not advocating that guns should be the norm i'm just saying if you're going to implement a law to solve a problem we have to critically analyze if it's going to do what it's intended to do so if you're going to take guns out of the hands of people who don't usually commit crimes then that is not solving the problem it might be a necessary step because you can ask some of these military-style weapons should never be in the hand of a civilian to begin with because you can have accidental injuries if people don't know how to right. use it. And you know, a lot of children actually die from guns in the household. Right. But then that doesn't solve the problem of illegal weapons killing people, whether it's in mass shootings or rural or urban city shootings as well. It doesn't solve those problems. And another aspect to that is if you look at the statistics of gun accidents within homes, it's not military weapons, it's handguns, right? -hmm. right? So if you ban machine guns, you still have the issue of handguns. Like it's just, it's not addressing the root cause without critically analyzing it. 
Right. I just wanted to add another like one last point that opponents against gun control laws often like to use to strengthen their argument, and it's that why are we banning guns or you know, putting controls on these things while we're letting other let's say deadly things exist right. and are allowed to flourish? Right. If we look back at the at the U.S., their gun ownership is 120 guns per 100 people. So that's among the leading in, in terms of gun ownership in the world. If we look at the U.S. and see what are the top three leading causes of death, um, just take a guess, guys. What do you think? Where do you guys think gun violence falls in that? I would say it falls below um, tobacco, fast food, and sugar-sweetened bre- beverages. Like Probably those would be my guess because of the comorbidities those products can bring. Right. So people who are against gun control laws often state like why are we not putting more stricter regulations and laws on things like tobacco sugar sweetened beverages and alcohol yeah why are we not putting stricter laws on those things but instead you know they're focusing so much of the attention on gun control when that only makes up you know a smaller proportion of it so as we've discussed we've seen that um, the opponents against gun control laws have their set of arguments for why these laws are not effective or are not comprehensive but what about the proponents for stricter gun control laws? What are some of the arguments that this group might use to back their support for more stricter gun laws? The simple answer is gun control saves lives, right? So we can get into the magnitude of gun control, whether it's more or less than a certain disease and whatnot. But the fact is one death from a gun is one death too many, right? So yeah. pu- the public health approach is to reduce the incidence of premature mortality, Right. So whether it's one person dying a year from a preventable death or 500 million, the goal of public health is to stop things that can be prevented. So in terms of uh, proponents for stricter gun control laws, we can argue about what those specific measures and laws are. But there's no doubt that that should be a focus. Another aspect that we can look at for gun control laws is the targeting of military class weapons that are only used for killing in the sense of war zones so like your assault rifles your machine guns these guns are designed solely to kill people in war zones and they're unlike other classes of guns for example hunting rifles which are used with the specific purpose of mind to go out and hunt game so are gun control laws like we discussed before are they being created purposely to stop mass shootings or are they created purposely to stop gun accidents Hmm. so for example we talked about handguns being the primary result of gun accidents at home what are our gun controls looking specifically to both of those instances that's a fantastic example because in the united states i believe one percent of gun related deaths were caused by mass shootings so if we're going to talk about and again every life is important but in terms of the sheer Mm -hmm. numbers of the problem if you hypothetically create policies or regulations to stop um, the use of these military style weapons you technically effectively only reduce gun-related deaths by 1%. And that's great because another concern of mine is that if we look at how policies are passed within legislation, there's a policy window, right? Mm -hmm. If we pass gun control laws that focus on military armament, how many years are we going to be okay with that before we get to the greater statistical anomaly, or sorry, the greater statistical significance of handguns? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then how many years with between the military grade to the handguns are we going to have to suffer through gun related deaths? 
That's a great point too, because um, the conservative opposition leader, Andrew Scheer in, in Canada, he actually criticized uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for using this as an opportunity to implement these gun control laws. Precisely what he said was um, the Prime Minister was using emotion to kind of fuel uptake for the, his new proposed policies. And that plays into your exact point. If we if we don't look at things rationally uh, and we look at things from an emotional perspective, yes, it was an incredibly horrible thing, um, the tragedy in Nova Scotia with the mass shooting. Mm-hmm. But make it be known, I, I would say in terms of transparency, at least if you're a policymaker, make it be known that, okay, the purpose of this law is to stop mass shootings. Don't don't call it gun violence because gun violence is a way bigger problem than mass shootings. Yep. This bill is a policy to stop mass shootings and to reduce the number of fatalities in a single shooting, right? Mm. Now, if we want to reduce the overall numbers, that's a whole different issue that these bills don't address. Yeah, and you're also going to have the problem of when these laws won't work. If they won't work down the line, then people say, oh, you know what, what you guys are talking about, it's all just uh, mumble jumble. All these laws you're passing, is not going to work. And uh, you're just restricting guns on law-abiding citizens and not the actual criminals. And that people are going to have this distrust afterwards in gun control laws. Mm, that's a good point. So I think you guys mentioned some really good points. And I think it's a set up a good segue for us to move on to the Canadian context. So as I mentioned at the beginning, on May 1st, 2020, Canada announced a national-wide ban on military assault-style weapons. And I just wanted to get your insight on what do you think the the long-term effects of this ban may have on Canadians? And I know, Ben, you mentioned how this only focuses on assault-style weapons and not on the on handguns. But like, what other sorts of pros or cons do you guys think this law has on Canadians in general? So for me, one point that came to mind is that how will this ban affect um, yes, indigenous, Inuit, or Métis communities who depend on hunting as a form of sustenance, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it's, it's stated that over uh, 1,500 styles of firearms were included in the ban list, but um, when the government was you know, drafting this law, did they consider the indigenous Inuit or Métis context you know, when setting this list? Did they consider what kinds of rifles or firearms these communities used f- for hunting? You know, like, sure, we can, you can assume that they used hunting-style rifles, but what if that's not the case? Yeah, and that's a good point, Will, and it's very important to consider something like that. I do know that based on what the justice minister said, that there would be an exception for Indigenous people, mm. and they can continue to hunt with those weapons that were banned if they required to do so. Um, but they also mentioned that they're going to also find alternatives. So whichever alternatives they choose... Um, let's hope that they do have Indigenous representation in consultation with the communities. Also, it's my understanding that the ban, so there's more than 1,500 different um, guns that are a part of this ban, and um, all use of those firearms must stop effective of when the bill was passed. But the there's another component to it where there's a buyback program where owners of these guns will be given an opportunity to re- return them in exchange for money. But the problem is in like Australia, for example, when they implemented their sweeping gun law reforms, these uh, buyback programs were mandatory. And I believe from the position of Canada right now is that it would be voluntary programs. So hypothetically, 
you do not have to return the gun mm-hmm. these assault weapons so by using this weapon that you own now if you have an assault weapon that's on the list it would be an illegal use right gun mm-hmm. violence in terms of mass shootings are linked a lot to illegal use of firearms so it goes back to the whole problem where a huge component to the problem is not being uh, talked about so these guns will still be in the hands of people who can then use it so it's kind of like what is the point of the law if you're not taking them out of the hands of people you're making it illegal to use but illegal use of weapons is what's doing most killing so it doesn't make a lot of sense and i understand the complexity with drafting these gun laws but i think we have to do a detailed analysis of why something might or might not work and you know just looking at the overall picture or taking a step back at least um there was a poll done that surveyed nine major city centers 52 percent of canadians polled agreed that all types of guns should be made illegal and on the other hand a third of those polled were against the idea and 17% of those people were neutral on the stance. Mm-hmm. And we also got to take into consideration that was only in nine major centers, right? So, and across Canada, you have numerous communities that aren't you know, located in those core areas and are, are more periphery centers, right? So you have to take that with also a grain of salt and, and consider what the voice of those other communities might be regarding this topic. So it's definitely a very um, complex issue. So as you've heard today, the panel discussed the connections between public health and gun violence, exploring the arguments for and against gun control laws, using Canada as a case study example, looking at the future implications. Gun control, like all public health issues, is deeply nuanced and cannot be solved with a silver bullet. Thank you for listening. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.